Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have towards the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave but more than a slave, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I'm hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. If you keep the passage there open before you, um, if you're new with us, uh, my name is Dom, I'm the pastor here, it's lovely to welcome you with us. Um, if you didn't get one on the way in, hopefully there's still a few spare sheets at the back there with the reading on it, so to sort of save you tr- sort of trying to look around to, to find up the reading, Philemon's not maybe a place that you're uh, really regularly in. Uh, what I hope to do is, is actually go through the whole of this for us just uh, just this morning. So we've been going through Romans, but we will push pause on that. We'll come back to that in the new year. We'll look through a couple of these sort of books in, in one day um, over the next few weeks, and then we'll have a short series in Jonah, and then it'll be Advent. Sorry to sort of remind you, it's Christmas soon. Uh, and then we'll, we'll, we'll come back to it in the new year. This little letter, Philemon, is unique in the New Testament, It's a letter addressed to an individual, Philemon, but it's also an open letter. It's a letter that's also on a personal matter, and yet it has communal implications. So what's the idea that holds the letter together? What's its purpose? What's its point? Well, to tell you that, I need to tell you a quick story This is a story of the preacher, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, and the butcher. There was a butcher in London's East End. He didn't go to church or really have the time for it. He didn't really have much interest in it, although his his wife did. His wife attended the Metropolitan Tabernacle. 
this was the home of Charles Haddon Spurgeon, a church which grew to around 10,000 attendees per service every Sunday in a time in which the church was largely dying. And one evening, the butcher decided he wanted to hear Charles Spurgeon preach. He'd become something of a celebrity even beyond the walls of the church, uh, asked uh, for his opinions in newspapers and amongst commentators. So the wife sort of tried to hide her excitement sort of back the best she could. Uh, but when he came home, thought, well, I'll find out, you know, what did he think? How did he get on? What did he take from it? So she asked him, how was it? What did he say? What, what was the passage that he was preaching on? What did you think of it? What did you sing? And the butcher could give no answer to any of the questions. His wife, frustrated now, says, well, you know, did you really go? Eventually, the husband mustered an answer. He said, all I know is, as of tomorrow morning, the scales are being set to zero. You see, for years, the butcher had been cheating customers on his weights. He made the connection in whatever it was that Spurgeon had preached that day, that the gospel changes your life. And for him, that meant the measures go to zero. That's the point of this little letter, that the gospel reaches into our dysfunction, into our disorder, our disobedience. It deconstructs and then reconstructs us from the inside out. And his hope and point here, Paul, to Philemon is to restore that relationship with Onesimus. Paul writes this around about AD 60. He writes uh, to the church in Colossae, and then this little letter Philemon often gets kind of uh, appended on the end of it in commentaries, and maybe rightly so, because this is where Philemon is based. And it becomes a productive period of writing for Paul in this imprisonment. I want to show you just three things uh, from this letter this morning. Firstly, Philemon's faith, Paul's appeal, and a relationship redeemed. If you look with me there to the first seven verses, I want to show you Philemon's faith. And I want you just as we do that, think of someone in your own mind who has wronged you and where a relationship has become fractured. And just hold that in the back of your mind as we explore this letter together. Paul writes, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus. Paul knows something of what it is to suffer, to endure shame, scandal, and even slander. Paul has found himself in prison in Rome simply for doing his job, for preaching the gospel, for making disciples, for planting churches. But listen to how Paul understands and processes and masters the reality of his suffering. Listen to how he puts this. This is around about a year later, AD 61. He's writing to the Philippians now. Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, that is being imprisoned, has really served to advance the gospel. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. 
And this little letter, Philemon, just a year before, proves the case that this was true, that the gospel was bearing fruit for Paul even in his imprisonment. Here is Onesimus who is brought to him and comes to Christ under his ministry. It proves that this isn't just positive thinking from Paul, that my imprisonment really has served to advance the gospel in some sort of way just to sort of trick himself and kid himself on that, oh, really, it's not so bad. No, it really has. Onesimus really is saved. You see, suffering for Paul has not silenced him. It's not stopped him. He has realized even he has a ministry where he is in that prison cell and accepts that gospel ministry doesn't end with him. The advancement of the church doesn't end with Paul being in prison. It's bigger than just him. God has proved what Paul later will write. Romans 8 verse 28, we thought about this a few weeks ago. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. And the word to circle is all, all things, even bad things, sad things, things you wouldn't choose. All things work together for good. So how about you? What about your suffering? How do you view it? Is everything about escaping what God has placed you in? Or will you let the overwhelming grace and power and glory of God work through you in your weakness to show the supremacy of his power? preaching we've only got to verse one Philemon our beloved uh, worker he says we find out who this is written to now Philemon a beloved worker Aphia our beloved sister Archippus our fellow soldier and the church in your house this is Philemon his wife Aphia his son Archippus and the church within their house it's addressed to a ministry family and yet it's a letter that's open to the church And it's a church meeting in their house, which is commonplace in the time. Paul's usual pattern of ministry is to first preach in the synagogues. And he'll do that for as long as it takes until people want to stave his head in. Uh, And then he'll leave and he'll start ministering to Gentiles. And you might say, well, Paul, that's, that's a pretty poor sort of strategy. But no, that comes from Paul's idea. He said it right at the beginning of the letter to Romans that we've been thinking about. that The gospel is given to the Jew first and then also to the Gentile. And so Paul wants to go first to his own kinsmen and brothers and sisters and give them the gospel for as long as they can sort of actually stomach it before wanting to kill him, he'll he'll then move on to Gentiles to preach to them also. And so the reality would be when you're kicked out of the synagogue, where else are you going to do it? You're not going to get a public space because at this point historically, Christianity is religion illicita. It's illegal. There's licit religions, Judaism, one of them, but Christianity, not at this point. So you're not going to get a public meeting place. Your only alternative is a home. It's a church meeting in Philemon's house, which tells us Philemon's house is big enough to host a church, which means they likely had money, which means they probably ran businesses. But now we hear something of Philemon the man, and this is more interesting. I thank my God, verse 4, always when I remember you in my prayers. Why is Paul thankful of him? Look at verse 5. Because I hear of your love 
and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and all the saints. See, the gospel bears clear fruit there, doesn't it? Two fruits in two different directions. Love for God, love for the saints, that is the church. And faith in God. And faith, actually oddly, in believers. Love and faith. And it's interesting how simple that all sounds, isn't it? Yet maybe we know the reality of life is it's not quite as simple as that. But notice the things that Paul doesn't celebrate about Philemon. Notice the things not listed. He's not listed the arguments that he thinks he's won. He's not pleased because of that. He's not pleased because of a number of members that they have in their church, or the amount of meetings that are attended, or the positions that they've held, or the names that they can sort of name drop, or the influence they think they might have gained, or the books that they've read. It's simply love and faith that Paul celebrates in Philemon. And then listen to his petition for Philemon. Listen to what he's praying for, for him. Verse 6, I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective. That makes it sound as if it wasn't effective before. But actually, in the original language, what it's talking about is the word there is energize. Energize. I pray that your sharing of your faith would be energized. It's not suggesting that it wasn't before. He's just asking that it would be even more so. I pray that the sharing of your faith may be energized. Paul's primary concern for Philemon, for the church at Colossae, is that their witness be effective. So just pause a second and ask ourselves, what about us? What's our priority? And then look at Paul's aim, verse 6 here. For the full knowledge of every good thing that's in us for the sake of Christ. I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that's in us for the sake of Christ. The focus here is the good things that's within us, not the knowledge. He's not asking that you might get full knowledge as if that's the focus of the sentence, gaining full knowledge. The focus of the sentence is every good thing within you that you need to perceive and to see and to understand everything that you have. The knowledge isn't the thing that helps you. The thing that helps you is that every good thing that Christ has given you, but he hopes and he prays that the witness will be effective so that people would understand just what they have. You don't need to go out seeking and searching for all this great knowledge that's all about what you can do and what you can achieve and your sort of level of intelligence and capacity. Instead, it's here's everything that God has given you and if only you could see, if only you could just see just that bit more, everything he's given to you. And there's the difference. He says, for I've derived much joy and comfort from your love, brother. Joy and comfort. And the word comfort there actually is encouragement, it's paraclesis, it's the word that's used very often of the Holy Spirit. I've derived joy and comfort and encouragement from you, brother. And that's the real test of faith. Your test of your faith isn't your level of intellect, your level of emotion about it, your activism, your attendance, your sincerity, your asceticism, you know, your sort of discipline to not doing this and doing that, your popularity. 
the real test of faith is measured in two outcomes and one motivation here. There are two outcomes there, aren't there? The transmission, that is the giving towards others of joy and comfort. And they come from one motivation. Love. Love for God and love for others. And yet, if this is the test, the transmission, the giving of joy and of comfort through a motivation of love, really what it's saying is, are you spirit-filled? Because those are the key qualities and characteristics that come from the spirit, of joy and comfort. Just a couple of places we see that. Acts chapter 13, the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. That's not two things, that's a joy that comes from the Holy Spirit. Or a little earlier on, chapter 9, verse 31, walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, the church multiplied. As a believer, you have the Holy Spirit within. You can't possibly believe without it. You can't possibly have your eyes open to be able to see Jesus for all he is without the Spirit being within you. But the Scripture tells us, be being filled, Ephesians 5, verse 18, with the Holy Spirit. Ask for more. All this to say, Philemon is a good pastor. What's the benchmark for it? He gives rest to hearts. The hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Philemon is a good man. He's a godly man. He's full of the Holy Spirit. He blesses, he encourages, he loves others, which all sets up Paul's ask in this next section. Look at verse 8 to 16 here. We've seen Philemon's faith. Paul has set that up for us because now he's going to make an appeal. Think about that person that I asked you to think about in that situation. What would it take for you to welcome that person back into your life? Think about that. Paul has set all this up here. Philemon's a man of faith here. And then verse 8, he says, Accordingly, therefore, because you do do this, because you do love people, because you do serve people and encourage people, I'm asking this, expecting that you will. Because I know what you're like. Accordingly, though I'm bold enough to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. You see that contrast there. He could command, and he's bold enough to do it, but he'd rather appeal. He could tell you what to do, but he'd rather encourage you that you decide to do it for yourself. See, last week Hugh was uh, talking about in the story of Nebuchadnezzar, humble brags. Well, here is a humble flex from Paul because he's flexing his spiritual authority. See, now, this isn't popular today, is it, right? Because people today, by and large, are very anti-authoritarian, okay? And things like social media help and encourage that because they say everyone's part of the conversation. Everybody can have a voice. And something like Wikipedia, as fascinating and interesting and useful as it is, is it that helpful that anybody in the world can write an article on anyone? Not always. Not always. There's a reality that there's hierarchies of competency in life. That there are some people who are more competent. If you're having a heart attack, you want the doctor with the qualifications, don't you? I do. If I'm in a legal wrangle, 
I want the lawyer who's been to law school. I don't just want the Facebook warrior. There are hierarchies of competency. Not everybody can do everything. It's not everybody's role. And that's just as true in church life. The org chart isn't flat. The church has a hierarchy of calling and competence. Some leaders are needed. Paul says this earlier on elsewhere. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 29. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? No, but some do, and some are given to help serve and lead the church in that way. God calls and sends and places leaders. It's important. Our leaders are there. There there is spiritual authority because God has placed them there. Again, that same chapter, just the verse before. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, their miracles and gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. God has appointed. And here's the really challenging thing, that sometimes following a leader really is about following not that leader, but God. Scripture paints it this way. I could go to many places, but here's just one. First Samuel 8. Here's God speaking to Samuel. The people have rejected Samuel as leader, as judge over them. They want a king just like every other nation. Samuel's upset. He's upset not just because of his sort of felt loss of position, by the way, but because in so doing, they're turning against what God has said. God has said no on this, but they've not accepted what God has said. Here's what God says to Samuel. The Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they've not rejected you, but they've rejected me from being king over them. And then lastly, spiritual authority. Leaders can and have been led. The thing about leaders is they're actually very leadable because they're accountable to other leaders. They have a track record of service and being accountable to others. Paul himself, take him as an example here. Galatians 2, verses 1 to 2. Then after 14 years after his initial calling and coming to faith. He says, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. What is he saying? It seemed important and significant and right for me to make sure that godly, gifted, called, experienced men recognized that I was doing the right thing. It mattered to me that other leaders who were here before me could say, you're on the right track. Paul, great apostle and authority he is, willing to submit himself to others. He says here, verse 9, when James and Cephas, that's Peter and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave me the right hand of fellowship. And he sees that as pivotal and important to himself. And there's the reality. In a world that doesn't like the idea of authority, here's all the ways in which it's God-given and that there's safeguards upon it. To say nothing of repeated commands to respect, obey, and honour leaders. And so Paul says, I could command you. And he's right. He could. But I'd rather appeal to you. Gently, he reminds Philemon, 
He has apostolic authority. He could rightly order him to do this. And he should obey him. But he'd rather appeal. And then notice the instant vulnerability that Paul puts into it. I could command you, but I'd rather appeal. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner, also for Christ Jesus. There's the vulnerability. I, an old man, and now a prisoner, appeal to you. And the word is parakalo. It's the same, if you remember from verse 7, paraklesis, encouragement. It's a word that's given for the Holy Spirit. I appeal to you, I encourage you, for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Who was Onesimus? Well, look at the next verse there, verse 11. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now indeed, he's useful to you and to me. There's a play on Onesimus' name. His name is useful, but he has previously been useless. It's a slave name. It's a slave name that's been given to him. And it seems, for whatever reason, he's not maybe quite lived up to that name in the past. But he has now become useful. Paul says, verse 12, I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. He's a part of him now. And the word is my guts, my innards, my body, my very, who I am. He's, he's part of me. I love him. He's as good as family. He says, I would have been glad to have kept him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment. But again, he would rather not force Philemon into doing this. He wants Philemon to choose this himself. Onesimus was a slave, and it seems not a particularly good one. And he's run away. And the subtext seems to be that Onesimus ran away having stolen from this family. We've mentioned slavery before not, not so long ago when we were looking at Romans 6, so I won't go in, in too much detail because of time, but a few bullet points. Slavery here is quite different to the sort of slavery that we know much more about from the British Empire and from America. Slavery here wasn't about race. Slavery incorporated people from any and every background that did not target one particular group in a different way to more modern forms of slavery have very much done that. This kind of slavery didn't. It was a bit different. This kind of slavery wasn't about enforced menial labor in the way that that other more recent slavery very much was. This kind of slavery encompassed, in fact, many respected professions. Teachers, doctors were slaves. Slavery here held the economy together. In fact, estimates from historians are that around 35 to 40% of the population of Rome were slaves in some form or other. And in fact, actually, if you found yourself in particularly hard times, one of the things you would do is offer yourselves up to someone because you could guarantee you would be fed, you would be housed, you would have some sort of payment. So it's a little different. But slavery was and is always wrong. There's no way that slavery can be airbrushed as anything other than wrong either then or now, in the form it was here or the form it took later, much more so 
uh, later with the elements of trafficking and abuse and exploitation and murder and everything else that come along with that. And yet, and this is really significant for you to hear, Paul calls to end slavery without outright saying it. He doesn't say here slavery should stop. And maybe that's a disappointment in some ways. But listen to what he does say. Because in his call to take Onesimus as a brother, Paul has removed and destroyed the category of slave. And more than that, he has replaced it with a new category, family. He's done something even greater, arguably, than what he could have done if he said you should end slavery. Because that ends it. But what does it do for all of these people who now are removed from that? But where do they go and who are they to be? And how are we to relate to them? Well, Paul gives it clearly. No longer a slave, family. Paul effectively calls for slavery to be destroyed in so doing. The wonderful reality of God's sovereign election that he chooses and calls and brings people to salvation has reached this runaway slave who's wronged this family. Running to Rome from his past, the grace of God has chased after Onesimus. It tells us two simple things. You can't outrun your past, no matter how you try. And people today still try to do that. They still try to run to the big city to get away from the past, forge a new future, only to find it comes back. Here's Onesimus running away from having stolen in jail again. We take that to show that old habits died hard for Onesimus. Back in trouble again. You can't outrun your past, but you can't outrun God's grace. For as much as Onesimus' life had really broken down around him, you can't outrun God's grace. And Paul in prison may have been wondering if ministry was over for him, if this was it. The rest of his life is just to sit and stare at these four walls. And Onesimus is brought to him. You see, if you pray for opportunities, God will bring people into your life. And so Paul sees the purposes of God in all of this situation. This is perhaps why he was uh, parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. You see that contrast? He was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. It took Onesimus fleeing to hear the gospel in Rome and be restored Perhaps just as faithful Philemon had been praying, from all that we hear of Philemon, perhaps he had been praying for Onesimus. Praying that he might hear the gospel and might make something of his life away from him. And so Paul ends his ask here to take him back no longer as a slave, but as a beloved brother. And there's the challenge to Philemon. Will you have him back on new terms, not as a slave? All that Paul is asking here 
is that Philemon would do for Onesimus what Christ has done for us. That though we were once enslaved to sin, God has redeemed us and adopted us as children, not as slaves. Galatians chapter 4 verse 3. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And just like Jesus' parable of the son who squanders the inheritance from his father, and he wonders, well, maybe my only way back is to be a servant in my father's house, because my dad treats the servants pretty well. They're fed, they're clothed, they're looked after, and the father won't have it. You'll not come back as a servant, you'll come back as my son. And so Paul is asking Onesimus, here's the, uh, Philemon, here's the truth and the reality of the gospel that God himself has bought you out of slavery to sin and adopted you as a son. Give to Onesimus what your father has given to you, what he has taken from you. is no comparison to what you have done to your father. Have him back, but not as a slave. The gospel's worked in Onesimus. How does Paul even know about this situation? Because Onesimus' conscience has been moved as he's come to faith to share with Paul, look, Paul, we have a mutual friend. And I need to tell you about something I did in my past. His conscience has been moved, but also God's providence has put them in the same place together. And the question for Paul is, would he help to set it straight? And the answer is yes. Lastly, here we see the relationship redeemed. Think about that person you've been thinking about. What if the person who wronged you, who perhaps you may have thought would never change, what if they do? What if they did? What if they can? Paul comes into land on the crux of his letter here. Onesimus, once a slave of Philemon, is now a minister, slave, because that's what the word means in the original language, of Christ. If you consider me, verse 17, he says, your partner, receive him as you would receive me. You see that contrast. If you consider me a partner, receive him as you would take me in. And his point is, don't just have him in, but have him in in the basement and have him in on the squeaky bockety bed with the springs that sort of poke through the mattress. And don't be just giving him the sort of scraps and the leftovers. Don't be giving him the rough towel that's not been put through the tumble dryer that's like sandpaper. Have him in and roll out the red carpet. This is a bit of a sort of early 90s reference, so apologies if you sort of weren't alive there. The, the idea is... Philemon, crack out the Ferrero Rocher. There used to be this advert in the 90s where there's this big ambassador's party and the sort of culmination point of it is a butler sort of walking around with a pyramid of Ferrero Rocher and the sort of, you know, uh, fawning response of the guests is, oh, 
ambassador, you're, you're spoiling us. Because, of course, the height of class is a pyramid of Ferrero Rocher. It's become a wonderful sort of meme now for gifts that, you know, somehow it seems like the giver is expecting us to sort of all fawn over and go, oh, amazing, but actually really it's not that great. Uh, perhaps like Liz Truss's uh, bailout packages. Oh, ambassador, you spoil us. Philemon rolled out the red carpet for Onesimus. In order for him to receive Onesimus in this way, how Philemon considers Onesimus has to change. Because here's Paul's point here. How you treat Onesimus tells me how you view me. You've always treated me right, so extend this to Onesimus. And there's a question for us, isn't there? Is there someone that you need to change the way you are considering? You just think of them differently. The gospel calls us to release people from past sins and receive them on new terms. Paul writes elsewhere here, Second Corinthians 5, about this. In wonderful language of how God has done this for us Two, he says, for the love of Christ uh, controls us because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Do you see that? That we once were dead, we once were enslaved in sin and lost, and yet Jesus in his grace has come and has lived in our place for us and has died for our sins for us, that we might be set free from that, that we might be redeemed, that we might be considered new. And so now... Consider every person who is in Christ new and see it as your job to encourage, to be ambassadors for people to be reconciled to God and be reconciled together. Then there's this huge commitment from Paul, isn't there? Verse 18. If he's wronged you at all, we take it that he has, or owes you anything, charge that to my account. Here's the second truth here. Firstly, the gospel calls us to release people from past sins and receive them on new terms. Secondly, the gospel produces a willingness to foot the bill to restore the relationship. It says, I'll take the cost. Though God made a good world and gave every good thing needed for life, humanity rebelled. Not only against his rule, but they've tried to set the rules and overturn the good order he's established so that every sin isn't just an action. It's more than that. It's an accusation. It's an accusation that God somehow, in some way, is not good. That in some way he is not right. That he's not perfect. That somehow he's held out on me. 
Somehow he's held me back. And what does God do? God comes himself. He lives the life we should have lived. Jesus is everything that we're not. Living a life of perfect obedience for us. So he could die the death we should have died. So our sin would be exchanged for his perfection. So that God would foot our unpayable debt for us. The gospel produces a willingness to foot the bill to restore the relationship. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. There's some bits in Paul's old age and his letters that are dictated to others, that are kind of collated by others, but this he writes himself in his own handwriting that they would recognise, I write this with my hand, I will repay it. To say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. You see, there's a debt owing to Paul from Philemon. And to this point, Paul hasn't cashed in on it. But now Paul wants to call that debt in. Brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. And yet the benefit isn't really to Paul, it's all to Onesimus. What's the debt? The glorious inheritance of the gospel leaves us indebted to those who shared its riches with us. Paul had once shared the gospel with Philemon in just the same way he shared it with Onesimus. Philemon, if you had not heard the gospel then and your life been turned round, where would you be today? You owe everything to having heard of the Lord Jesus. Refresh my heart in Christ, then he says. And he's contrasting back. Think back to verse 7 there that Philemon refreshed the hearts of the saints. And now he's saying, now refresh my heart. Do something for me here, as you have so many others, by receiving back Onesimus. Because thirdly, the gospel connects my soul health to yours. I can't be happy. I can't be healthy if you're not. And you can't be if I'm not. We are a body. This is the way Paul puts it elsewhere. He has this mysterious metaphor for the church, the soma, the body of Christ. It means that we're all interconnected. We're all interdependent. Puts it this way, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 26. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honoured, all rejoice together. And then here's the measure of the man, Philemon, again, verse 21. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. It's a leading compliment because he's turning the screws on him a little bit here. I'm confident of your obedience, brother, and this is why I write to you. And I write to you knowing you're going to do even more than what I've suggested. But also, it tells the reality that, fourthly, the gospel produces a confidence in God's ability to transform hearts. He's confident that the grace of God working in Philemon will mean he will take Onesimus back. 
But just in case, and here's where we close, because we'll leave the greetings at the end. Verse 22, prepare a guest room for me, for I'm hoping that through your prayers, I'll be graciously given to you. Because the gospel, fifthly, is realistic about the potential to not live up to its call. And so sometimes it needs the agitation of a leader. Just in case you're tempted not to, Philemon, I plan to come visit and I plan to see how you've treated Onesimus. See, the gospel not only repairs the broken relationships back to sort of previous terms, it does something deeper. It redeems them. It sets them on new terms. So, as we close then, I ask you to close your eyes and in a few moments we'll pray. But a few questions for you to meditate on just as we come to God in prayer. How about you? Is there somebody that like Onesimus you've been running from? And maybe the truth is you're in the wrong. How about you? Will you front up and deal with it? How about you? Have have you been trying to run from God? Trying to run from your past? Will you allow his grace to redeem and to renew you? Or have you been wronged by someone maybe? Will you forgive and welcome them back? Not on parole, but as family. Or are you in a place where you, like Paul, might be a peacemaker? Will you risk having to foot the bill to restore a broken relationship?